You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am a narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time. To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't. Further down the line. morning, Lucy. Good morning, Tonio. It's wonderful to have you here. You look bright and cheery. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Big smile. I'm really excited having you on. Me too. You were on the show with me and Carla about two years ago? A uh, year and a half ago. A year and I a think. half ago. Yeah. And that was right at the very beginning of your Goddard adventure? Yes. Feels so long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Your name, full name is Lucy Schmidt. Yes. And you just graduated Goddard's Masters of Education yes, program? Yes, this weekend. And last weekend you did this wonderful performance, which was part of your graduation thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I read your thesis 
this past week, which was wonderful. I was really impressed. Thank you. But you're probably used to that. (laughs) Well, you're the first one to really read it all the way through, probably besides Gail Jackson. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's hot off the press. I just finished it. Did you find any typos? Oh, well, not not typos, but I, I found at least one spot where there was a word left out. Oh, great. Well, you can tell me about that later. (laughs) I added it in. Great. Because I might read it. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really love the way you you wove in the various writings and work and perspectives of the people you were studying for this. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. All that integration of what we learn. Yeah. And doing it on paper. You know, for the, for the academic world. Right. Which has value because I think it helps concentrate the learning experience in a way. Yeah. It as helped, long as it's yeah. grounded somehow in other ways, which is probably the biggest part of your work, your studies and your education. Grounding it in my body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because the title of your thesis is Calling on the Teacher, Explorations in Voice, Embodiment, Performance, and Liberatory Education. So a year and a half ago when you were on the show, you were in here with all of Carla's other advisees. Yes. I don't know if they were all at the beginning of their Goddard journey or not. Most of us were. Mm -hmm. And then you were on Carla's show last week or two weeks ago. And the change in you is so dramatic. I mean, Mm -hmm. you are so radiant and bright and shiny. What happened in those? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. I mean, the short answer is that I came much more deeply into my body and my voice in the world that you see me now sitting here speaking pretty (laughs) confidently from myself. I came to understand a lot more about who I already am in the world and who I want to keep becoming. So how does that experience of embodying your experience and occupying your body change your life and the way you relate to the world? Mm. Well, this past semester I did, during my thesis semester, I did a couple different kinds of trainings and I did this one-on-one course with Amanda Franz at the Everything Space called Re-Embodiment Training. And that... (laughs) It, it was it, it was amazing. It helped me tune into the intelligence of my body that's beyond just my head brain and helped me start to understand my heart's intelligence and my gut intelligence as places to draw from in my daily interactions. And also just listening, listening to my body's responses to the world on so many different levels, like on the level of my skin and in my organs and my joints and connecting to my lungs and my rib cage and feeling my breath in there and feeling that that was one of my big goals for the course was to really root my voice deeper in my body because I believe that my voice would become stronger if I was able to connect it to the deeper intelligence of my body. I had had these stories that had built up over time, which I think a lot of us had around, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, like everyone else is really good, 
all of these other students at Goddard are amazing, and I'm an imposter. <laughs> and so I was really, through my whole thesis process, that was one of my places of entry was like, what are those stories that my, my head brain keeps like playing on repeat and that I know deeper in myself aren't really true, just even surely based on the feedback that I get in the world. So yeah, I was part of that training and I was, I participated in this collaborative performance ensemble that Amanda Franz and Heidi Wilson came together on called Woven Bodies Choir, which was a movement sounding improvisational ensemble and we performed at dreamland which was the home of the green mountain druids <gasps> Look who's here. did you sneak out of your meeting Oops. <laughs> <laughs> i'm outing carla carla brought her goddess guidance oracle cards wow which i remember from my first residency so yeah, you like to give your advising group the chance to draw a goddess card on their way out of Goddard. To, well, yeah. I do like it, but I'm really called to do it. Mm. So here I am. I'm very blessed as a man to be joined by two <laughs> prominent goddesses God, of oh. the community. <laughs> oh, you say that to all the goddesses who come on your radio show. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I should. <laughs> I should. <laughs> Well, actually, you know, we had a really great residency, and part of what we did with Jackie Batten, GDR's Jackie Batten, who was a student at EDU, and also our our beloved um, connection to this, the radio station, she brought her equipment from the station, and a number of students created audio art to use in their study plans, and also to maybe broadcast on WGDR. So I'm bringing back some of that equipment. And I thought since I was doing that, I would stop by uh-huh. before the faculty meeting <laughs> at 9.30. Oh, oh it's, it's, it's oh, 9.30. So yes. you're not necessarily ditching it. No, I would never do anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a devoted, I'm a devoted Goddard faculty member. So how are things um, going so far on the show without me? <laughs> <laughs> Great. I was just in the middle of um, how Tonio asked me how being more deeply grounded in my body has changed my life basically you've really blossomed so much and it seems like it's emerged Mm -hmm. through your body through your relationship your rediscovery of your body yeah my myself in your body my learning how to trust the intelligence of my to, to be able to recognize it to listen for it and to trust it as like that's a reaction that i'm feeling through my gut, through my heart. And that has helped me connect more deeply to my studies and go deeper into really scary, uncomfortable waters of understanding my own history, the history of my ancestors, of the history of other lineages, the people on this land, African-Americans. Which are like like mm -hmm. reflections of of that. You also spent a year delving deeply into Ashless Agamemnon, which is a similar kind of story in a way <laughs> in terms of how it reflects on our internal experience. You talked about your recent embodiment helping you cut through imposter syndrome, <laughs> something that yeah, right. I think we all are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was like, how did you know that I studied the Agamemnon? But I wrote about that in my thesis. You did. You and were I, a close reader of my thesis. 
I'm very close reader. <laughs> I, I read slowly and very carefully, mm-hmm. and often reread things. Like mm-hmm. last night, I went back and reread that part because I found that really fascinating. And you connected that with some of James Baldwin's writings. I did. <laughs> yes, it's like good At thing you just read it because it's At fresher least, for you. Than At least it is I for did, me. and. Yes. It also relates to a lot of the other stuff that you were weaving into your thesis about entering into our old stories, feeling the effects of them, feeling the hurt, the pain, mm-hmm. and learning to to work with those stories, work with the emotional energy in our bodies. And then to, you talked about really deeply listening to your body, listening to the truth of your body. And then I guess somehow or other that gives you the opportunity to, I don't know if rewriting the story is right, but, but re-experiencing it through your body as opposed to through the voices, like <laughs> the voices of um, the choir of old men in Agamemnon and James Baldwin's thing about being trapped in a history that we don't understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that until we understand it, yeah, we'll yeah. never get free of it. Yeah, yeah, the chorus in the Agamemnon is just like talking and talking and talking about like the doom that's what's over this house of Agamemnon and the curse, the curse. Yeah. The curse over the house. And I couldn't help but reflect on how we're all cursed in a way, Mm -hmm. in that way, because Mm -hmm. as we mature, as we grow into our, our adulthood, we bring in all those old stories that we have adopted prior to being even aware of them, where they came from or as just being stories. Mm -hmm. And, that sets us up for a whole new cycle of learning, unlearning and relearning. So in our culture, we don't do much in the way of embodiment, do we? <laughs> so I wonder, it seems like the, the vast majority of our society never emerges mm. out of that curse. Mm. Well, wouldn't you say that, I think it's, when I think of our culture, I struggle to even wonder what that even means because there's so many, and I, I can't say that this isn't true in other when you say our culture, are you thinking about Western culture or the United States or yeah, or the uh, only one Vermont I really know or Vermont? <laughs> I mean, I I was exposed to poor Southern Spanish culture, mm-hmm. which was a wonderful contrast for me, and I think it contributed yeah. greatly to my understanding of the world. If we're generalizing about, because I, I I mean I generalize often about <laughs> when I say our culture, I'm thinking of my experience as somebody born in the United States mm-hmm. and traveled extensively throughout this country and realizing what I think we know is that there's extreme diversity in this country. And and yet there is a little bit of this pervasive understanding of what it means to be somebody from the United States. And yet, um, I mean, we have some emerging cultures of people who are very much interested in being more in their bodies or connected to their bodies and their practices around embodiment has become, um, I think, emerging in ways that has been really beneficial. And then there's other places where I feel like I'm in maybe something called the mainstream where that may not be the case. I actually don't know. I really don't know. I don't know even how we find out. I mean, that would be a hard thing to survey. We can look at um, certain data around our health. You know, because I know that there's a concern that this is not a healthy culture in terms of its eating and exercise. And yet there seems to be 
if you're following me, this that is also becoming more and more even popular and trendy to to eat a certain way. And so I don't get but a sense. But are people that, really yeah. listening to their bodies in that? That's process, a really good point. I mean, it's a step. To just reading the latest yeah. bad diets, or or are they applying what like you know a lot of yoga has become a really mainstream and popular and on the deeper level of yoga you're, you're transferring that from your mat out into your life so like to what degree are people able to channel what they're learning in their bodies into their relationships into their the way that they understand history into th- which boils down to are they listening right <laughs> right well, are they it's, deeply it's a, listening it's a spectrum i think that if people are starting to think about what they're eating or think about getting in touch with their body on the mat when they may not have done that before in their life or dealing with grief maybe in a way mm-hmm. that where they're allowed, they're, they're going meditation or they're going to certain sorts of maybe retreats or places where they're using their body. You know, because when I think about my parents' generation, grief was just something you just swallowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my family culture was not one where I would call embodied in the way that it's used. As a child, all I can remember is being in my body and running around the world because that was also a time when that's what children did. I'm not saying they don't do it anymore, but it's harder now because of computers. I mean, more, and also you know, parents are yeah. afraid of what's yeah. I mean, going to happen think, out there. I mean, I think I had the possibly the most afraid mother in the history on the planet. I mean, she was afraid of everything and made sure I was as well. However, but we still, even with that, you know, like don't go near a swimming pool, you might drown. That, I mean, I could go on and on with the things I was because I could, don't don't touch that, your eye will fall out. I mean, it's, I, mean, it's, it's, wow. I mean, even things the other day, I mean, I threw my hat on the bed and I quickly took it off the bed because you don't put a hat on a bed. That's an old, she was superstitious on top of everything oh, else. Wow. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of fear. However, my whole childhood was very embodied because from morning until night, I was out and running and playing baseball and just in my body. And I think it's because there there was no such thing as computers, cell phones, any kind of technology. We barely had a television. I mean, it wasn't that long. And also, as a child, we're not particularly intellectually focused. Well, you know, I also remember being in my room and reading books, but, but I mean, but I, when you talk about embodiment, and, and I know it's more than this, but there was, there is this sort of mind-body connection, being in the body, and I don't know how that's being affected now when I, I mean, I also know that my grandchildren live in a family where they're very much encouraged to be outside all day and to play, 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 because that's what mm-hmm. my daughter really values. However, they also, my granddaughter, starting at four, knew how to manipulate an iPad like very few adults. So it's almost like they become Renaissance children with the technology. So I don't know how that affects their bodies. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking a lot right now about trauma, (laughs) Um, like on the many different levels that trauma can come to us. And there's, I mean, like a direct trauma to our bodies that we can experience as young children being abused or something like that and then having that living in our bodies and having to grapple with that later in life and then the insidious form of cultural trauma which we all everyone has but I think it's not so apparent to especially white folks that they're living with a certain it's not as oppressive to white people right well yes well it's well it is oppressive to white people, but it's not... In a different perce- way. But there's so much... Yeah. It's not a threat to their survival. Right. But I'm thinking of, you know, like people who are taking the time now to start to get in touch with their bodies. So like one of the things that I 
what I was doing in my project was kind of like approaching my re-embodiment on different levels. And so part of my re-embodiment training was really like reading all of these other voices that I had not been exposed to, that I had not been able to listen to through my education growing up because the curriculum left them out or, you know, mm -hmm. there was... So filling in these gaps. So how did that affect or change your, your perspective of the world around you? Well, it really helped me see the ways in which I am oppressed or have been like morally oppressed or disconnected from just like understanding how I'm implicated in other people's stories and other people's suffering. So becoming aware of other people's stories as well. Yeah. One thing I've grappled with is not only my own ignorance of other people's stories, but as I learn about other people's stories and, and the effects that our culture and things have on other people that are not particularly familiar for me, but also becoming really acutely aware of the level of ignorance in our culture about other people, that if we don't listen... And here's one of the big things about embodiment and mm -hmm. connecting, listening to our bodies, because that's where the truth lies, I think, mm -hmm. not in our head. Mm -hmm. Our head is, at best, is always going to be removed from reality, at least to some degree, right? Yeah, I can, yeah, <laughs> I would love to say more about uh, what, I've, what I've been learning about the head brain, the heart brain, and the gut brain, but after you finish here. So... Out of this sense of embodiment, of presence in our bodies, mm -hmm. emerges what I've discovered is that's where, that's the seat of empathy. That's where we can feel. Yes. And when we hear other people's stories, we feel them. Yes. If we're listening. Yes. If we're open to paying attention, to really listening. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and that's where compassion comes in. Mm -hmm. Love. And not the childish romantic love, but the love of connection, mm -hmm. of seeing ourselves in each other. That's really the heart of my thesis work. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, that's why we need to, to have... I, I started thinking about, like, what would embodied literacy mean? <laughs> like, reading the world through our bodies, which... Yeah, And that reminds me of reading. I mean, I, I read a lot, literature, mm -hmm. fiction. And even though it was an intellectual process, it fully engaged my imagination. And in a sense, I feel like it was embodied. I mean, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know how, how true that is, but I learned, I feel like I learned a lot. I integrated mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. of the range of human possibility and story Absolutely. through these books. And I read mm -hmm. lots of horrific story, you know, the, the horrors that mm -hmm. people do to each other in the world. And even though we make a huge deal about not doing these things to each other, we pass laws and punish people. In literature, literature is full of these horrific stories of mm -hmm. what people do to each other and what people can do to each other. And I think... I learned so much from that. Yeah. I gained so much empathy and, and compassion 
Well, you're making me think about how in my literature review, imagination comes together with the body. Um, and so I, I read Maxine Green releasing the imagination, which her whole mantra is about imagination, meaning being able to look at things as if they could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you were doing when you were reading all of these books. You were you were seeing all of these alternatives to the world that you were living in. And another word that she uses that I really like is openings. Like in order to to even begin to make change in the world, we need to be able to see the openings, to see the the places and the ways in to which have space to, to have, see something <clears throat> other than what yes. is right in front of you. Yes. Yeah. Just so hard for some people. Yeah. Because we tend to concretize everything. Yeah. And then I read Audre Lorde, The Uses of the Erotic, and I thought these two came together in my mind as like, okay, if, if Maxine Green's talking about looking at things as if they could be otherwise, Audre Lorde is talking about feeling things as if they could be otherwise. like Which is a deepening of that. A, yeah, a, a deepening of... The erotic being kind of like the creative force, like deep, most deeply creative force that lives within us all. And it's really interesting because you explicitly define that in a way. You have a line about, in our culture we only allow the erotic to be considered in the context of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's she writes that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's not what you're talking about at all. No, it's the creative force that when we get in touch with it, we, we see our own agency and our own responsibility in the world. We see our own responsibility to our own, to ourselves and to our lives to live into a better life really and that's what like when the when the erotic is oppressed when it's confined to the bedroom when it's confined to pornography when it beca- when it becomes pornographic locked away that's that's a deep form of oppression and a curse it's a yeah it's, it's a curse <laughs> all these metaphors really come together yeah against people coming into their full and true power and being able to connect with each other. And being able to connect with each other and to feel the, their connection to the rest of the world. And the world as well, because, right, mm-hmm. we're allowing, collectively, we're allowing the world to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And how could we do that if we felt connected to it? Yeah. So we need, we, need, we need to be building our imaginations. We need to be reading or hearing all kinds of different stories so that we can know, so that we can just see what already is in so much diversity and what is possible. And we need the support. Well, how do we cultivate the spirit of the erotic, which, I mean, I think is a really scary word in the world of education because then oh, you yeah. get in. How, yeah. how do you bring that into right. the classroom? Right. It, it depends on how you define the term. Right. And I, I guess we that. don't need to use the term the erotic, but we can think of it as creative power as aliveness aliveness yeah bringing bringing learning alive in our bodies Mm -hmm. and that's a scary thing for western culture to a large degree aliveness is Mm -hmm. yeah we want to hold the world at a distance and we want to we want to analyze it and look at it without ourselves in it without feeling right without being vulnerable to the feelings that we have about 
everything mm-hmm. that we've experienced so far. Yeah, and the whole academic tradition is based on pulling ourselves out of it. Not use, I remember you know, being trained not to use I in my academic papers, and then I got uh, to Goddard, and Carla was like, you need to put I in your papers. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, that makes, that makes sense, because I'm a subject in this you know, whole realm of... I'm part of the dialogue. Yeah, I'm part of on. the dialogue. Yeah. 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 And the world kind of evolves in a recurrent sort of way through me. Yeah. I mean, it's one aspect of it. It's not that it's about me, but it's certainly my experience of it, obviously, is happening through me. Right. And the more, like, awake and alive we can be to our own bodies. I remember talking on the phone to Gail Jackson, who was my advisor for the past two semesters, and saying, like, Gail, I just... I really want to, I really want to know, like, what is my work in the world? And she was like, you are your work in the world, Lucy. You are your work. Do your work. (laughs) Like, work on yourself. And then, you know, everything will, by working on myself, I ended up on stage this past weekend inspiring other people, which was really cool. Like, on the first level, I was doing that work for myself. But when we, when we do that work, for ourselves, it it ripples out. People see it, and people wonder and ask questions and feel, feel it. it. Feel it. Yeah, yeah. They feel it. Yeah, yeah. One of the coolest, I thought, parts of my performance last weekend, which was called "Dear Teacher Body," was this is actually an an idea that I need to credit my friend Mandy with. So everyone got some clay in their hands when they came in. And about midway through the performance, there was a moment where I had everyone close their eyes and center into their bodies and feel the clay in their hands. And then, and then to imagine themselves in middle school. And ultimately, they made a shape out of the clay that represented some aspect of their middle school experience. And then they all brought them up and put them on the front of the stage, like on a little altar to our middle school selves is what it felt like to me. And somebody came up to me after another education student and said that that had been a really powerful experience for her and that she didn't even realize how much pain and discomfort she had been holding from her own middle school experience and that she felt like that would be important work for all educators or teachers in training or whomever is trying to connect right now to middle schoolers. So are you talking about connecting with middle schoolers themselves or connecting to the middle schoolers within everybody? Both. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she works with middle school students, but but yeah, we I, all have a middle school student. Yeah, in our I school. totally, I, yeah. I totally connected with that. When you were yeah. narrating your middle school experiences, I was going into my own. I was reflecting long before you got to the clay part Mm -hmm. I was already there Uh but I've been doing that kind of work almost all my life anyway Mm -hmm. so that comes Mm -hmm. very naturally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and embodiment stuff too so I love the work that you're doing I mean you're you're my kind of educator and learner thanks yeah yeah this whole journey has been like me trying to figure out what kind of an educator like who I am as an educator right who the heck am I who the heck am I (laughs) What do I believe in? And it's true. It's all been kind of with me 
this whole time. But I had to kind of, and and I still, I mean, there's still so much unknown about where I'll go from of here. Course. Yay. And I'd be, <laughs> uh, I won't even ask you about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can. You won't get much of an answer. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> Depends on how it's asked and how it's listened for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So you did that re-embodiment training mm -hmm. with Amanda Friends. Mm -hmm. She's a dancer and... A somatic educator. About 20 years ago or so in this community I was living with in San Diego, we got into doing contact improv dance which mm -hmm. is so amazing i do that too yeah I, yeah oh yeah you of remember course, obviously <laughs> <laughs> yeah. about 25 years ago i went out to san francisco and saw a kind of impromptu performance at a conference mm -hmm. where it wasn't even on a stage it was just in this room and all the people there just sort of made a space in the middle of the room for these dancers to come in and, and kind of demonstrate the possibilities and what they were doing. And mm. it, it was basically what you did in this last performance, plus a contact improv performance by this group. Mm. And it just completely blew me away. Mm. I thought, wow, I love that. That is incredible. That's the most um. delicious thing I've ever seen. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, our movement possibilities are so prescribed to us in our daily lives and how we are trained in school to hold our bodies. Right, the vocabulary of mm. our movement and our presence in our body is so limited. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I learned when I was studying contact improv is that with each lesson, I literally expanded my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And once the body learns, it's there. It's grounded, it's rooted, it becomes part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think so much of how we are trained to move by the structures of schooling, which is like walking through the hallway, sitting at a desk. I mean, what else? Sitting what are, up straight. Sitting up straight. What are, what are, well, <laughs> who sits up sitting straight in still. class? Sitting still. Right, nobody does it, but yeah. that's what we're all taught to aspire yeah, to. Yeah, which isn't even good for our bodies to be sitting so much. And then, the like, window. you know, they replaced recess, like free play with gym class where you're doing a variety of different physical activities that are all functional. They're all related to some goal, like throwing a ball or, you know, whatever you did in gym class. And then I think about the ways that I've been moving. My, I, I started doing contact improv in college and was starting to do yoga around the same time. And both of those movement forms started to interact within my body. And over time, I've continued to do both and mostly dance. What you just described happening has happened. Like there's been an integration into my body of these new possibilities for movement, which then become worked into my day-to-day -day functional interactions with people. Like I'll stand and be talking to a student and like wiggle or just you can feel how the energy gets starts to feel like it's getting stuck and getting heavy right and then that doesn't feel good because i know how it feels to be light and free right. and fluid that's audrey lord <laughs> yeah i mean just the recognition of how much joy and pleasure you can 
feel in any given activity and having that bodily memory when we bounce back into a, a place of feeling really oppressed and constrained and just like stuck in our bodies, we know that other place. Right, like fear contracts our body, mm-hmm. makes us feel tense and mm-hmm. yeah. limits our possibilities. But if we don't know those, if we don't know those other possibilities, kids are exploring these possibilities. When I started doing contact improv, I was like, oh, it's like becoming a kid again and tumbling yeah. around, yeah. which I did with my siblings all the time. Mm-hmm. But we with were a always more awareness. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe with, a lot more awareness. Well, yeah, because there suddenly is something coming in telling me how I can move suddenly. And I just find myself sitting in a room and thinking about like how right now I possibly could stand on the table and dance, but socially that would be unacceptable. But I know that that possibility is there. Like I know that all of these other ways of being are right there, and that feels powerful. Mm-hmm. That we can honor whatever impulse arises. Mm-hmm. And when we're doing it with another person, then it becomes a dialogue, which is fascinating. That's what it's all it's about. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the unknown multiplied exponentially. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. potentially can be very scary, but can be incredibly exhilarating Mm-hmm. in terms of how our curiosity can become engaged. Yeah, contact improvisation, which I don't think we've explained what that is, if there's anyone listening who doesn't know. Yeah, why don't you go um, ahead and, and do that? <clears throat> it's, it's hard to explain, <laughs> but it's a form of dance slash movement in which... you can do it with yourself on the floor or with another person or with two other people or with a group but it's essentially an exploration of a point of contact between two bodies that is constantly shifting and you know so it could start with your finger and then move to your wrist and nobody's really leading or following you're both in that point of contact you're becoming kind of one organism moving, playing with momentum, playing with gravity. It can be really slow or fast and it can be on the floor and there's skills also like lifting people and but it's all like coming from a place of center of your core and your kind of the inner spiral that we have in our bodies and like as babies when we're first starting to move, that's the first movement that we do is we turn over and it's through this kind of spiral motion that emanates out from the core which somehow or other we lose touch with as we get older yeah and contact improv can give us that opportunity to listen back into that to get back into our core and then to be in dialogue with another body both people being in their cores but in leaning into the other person and giving weight to the other person you're you're finding a new center between your bodies so and being present with that and being present with that. So you really have to give weight to each other to the point where like if the other person just stepped out, like you would fall down. But it's it's your yeah. it's a great meditation because it's presence in motion, mm-hmm. which is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> in in some ways, it's the simplest and easiest thing to do. But mm-hmm. for us human beings, it <laughs> seems to be one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good metaphor for the rest of reality. Life. Life. Yeah. yeah. Like trees, trees are really good metaphors. 
for everything else. <laughs> well, <laughs> to some degree. They, they're yeah. very stable, though, yeah. which we tend not to be, but we can learn to be much more stable mm-hmm. and more rooted. I mean, it's a great addition to our potential vocabulary. Yeah. 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 But I started describing contact improv because I was going to say it can be a highly overwhelming experience to be that connected to another person. And in a way, like maybe it's someone that you don't really know very well. And it's this strange space to be in because it kind of breaks down the social um, it's very intimate. barriers that we usually have. And yeah, it's very intimate and it does call us more into our bodies and I think something that we haven't really said yet is like how terrifying and painful it can be to come back into our bodies. I mean, because we've just been storing stuff for our entire lives. Yeah. And if we haven't learned how to move it. Back to James Baldwin's thing, Mm -hmm. being trapped in a history that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And until we understand it, we can't be free. Yeah. But Amanda helped me understand in the re-embodiment training I came to an experiential understanding of this. I was laying on the ground and she was just using light touch to help me come into different layers of perception and listening to the messages that I get when my skin is being touched and my fascia and my joints and my organs. So she was like kind of going layer by layer. And at a certain point, my body became so aware of what it was experiencing that I became completely overwhelmed and Amanda was like move it so I started moving and I was like oh this is why we move we move because it we move to organize our perceptions we move in response because we need to we can't just if we just continue to take in and take in and take in and take in, then we become paralyzed. We become rigid and stuck. Mm-hmm. And so we have to move. Moving is literally processing. I mean, we process in a lot of ways. We process verbally too. Energy is fluid. Yeah. And it needs to be free in that mm-hmm. fluid way. Yeah. And if we get stuck... Mm-hmm. It has profound consequences on on every level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have to move out the things that aren't us that we don't want. And I don't think we necessarily need to know everything that's in there and going on. Mm-mm. But if we stay fluid, like moving, when we feel any sense of discomfort, mm-hmm. we can breathe and move, and just that movement, mm-hmm. getting the energy moving allows a kind of opening, and nature has a way of taking care of itself if we're somehow just paying attention, allowing things to emerge, change on their own. Which (laughs) brings me to another question, Mm -hmm. your performances. You've done two main public performances, right? Which, are are you referring to my cabaret performance? Right, your accordion performance. Yeah, I did a Goddard cabaret performance. And it sounded like that was an improvisational performance. Yes. That you didn't plan it or script it. I planned the basic structure of it. Okay. But I... You allowed a lot of Improvising within it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then the performance that I just did, I developed all the content through 
Well, I drew some of it from the autoethnographic writing that I did in my thesis. And then I took that material and I improvised with it. I just kind of practiced embodying it and feeling those stories that I had told. And then I re-found the words from a more embodied place, the words that most saliently arose. I had a script for my performance in Mm -hmm. the end, Mm -hmm. but I got to that script through improvisation. Okay. Um, This time you spent in the dance studio? Yeah. Yeah. Exploring it. Right. And I ultimately decided to have a script so that I could be more liberated Ah, in a way. Interesting. Um, Because... Yeah, I'd love... Because it was a more complex performance and... There was a lot of elements. There were a lot of layers and I discovered those layers as I was improvising it. And so then there became things that I really wanted to make sure I didn't forget to include because they would help bring the threads through to the end. And ultimately, you know, if I came up with some words in rehearsal that I was really into, and then I went back to improvising on stage, then I would have had this stuck feeling of like looking for those words that had once emerged so alively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> alively. And so an interesting thing happened. The day before the performance, I did a dress rehearsal with my co dancer Johanna Anderson and she gave me the feedback that my words that I seemed a little stuck on my words and that the performance was just kind of like falling a little bit like flatter which makes sense because I was like trying to follow the script and then the next day I had an audience and having an audience absolutely transformed the entire thing that was the live element that brought it to life created an an immediacy yeah yeah it was the relationship yeah it was the relationship so is that something that works being able to integrate improvisation along with planning oh yeah i think that was a beautiful way to work and a really embodied way like the best of both worlds? Yeah. And and now, after going through that whole process, I'm thinking now about the possibilities of embodied writing and not necessarily creating something that's going to be performed on a stage, but in just creating a, a piece of text that's going to be read by other people. A couple of weeks ago on Carla's show, there was another student, Nija, in the writing program Mm -hmm. and Nigel was talking about how they will have a very embodied editing process with their work and cut things up and move around the room and speak them and read them out loud and so this has been kind of a a revelation for me that I mean I already knew I've been a writing tutor before and I've already known that having someone read their own work aloud can be very fruitful to realizing what they're actually saying or what they really want to communicate. But now I'm just seeing the the possibilities. And I'm talking with Lucy Schmidt. She's a recent graduate of Goddard College's Master's in Education program, and it's the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So you did this playback theater thing, which relates Mm -hmm. to what you were just talking about, which I... 
thought was fascinating. Describe what that was about and how that changed the way you see things. Mm -hmm. So playback theater is a theater form that emerged in the mid-70s around the same time as Theater of the Oppressed. And it's an improvisational form of theater where members of the audience come up and share stories and then a group of improvisers play back the story to the teller and to the whole audience. When you say playback, are you mean acting it out or just perform? Yes, they're acting it out. And there's a variety of different forms that the creators of playback theater and practitioners, other practitioners have kind of developed over time. For example, a fluid sculpture is one form that stories can get played back in. Different forms are good for different kinds of stories. And maybe fluid sculpture is good for someone expressing a feeling or a shorter experience where one by one the performers step up, do some sort of embodiment of some aspect of that feeling, and then kind of freeze in it or keep moving, and then other people come and join. So it creates this composite fluid sculpture of that person's experience. And then another one is pairs, where there's four people on stage, each standing in pairs, one behind the other. And so that's a good story for like a story where you're feeling conflicted about two different things. Like I'm really feel so happy to send my kid off to college and I'm terrified of having an empty nest. So that can get played back in the the tension between two people playing both of those parts. And then there's longer forms. So it creates an intersection between um, ritual. There's aspects of the playback that are kind of ritualized. Art, there's usually like an artistic or aesthetic director to the playback company if it's a company, though it can also be played with just in community without a more formalized group. And then social interaction and just like layers of understanding people's stories as, you know, they happen in a person's life and then being connected to larger forces, cultural forces. And then there's a conductor who's interviewing the person on stage and kind of holding the space and facilitating the experience. So I experienced playback in Portland, Maine for the first time went to a couple of performances and told a story there. One of the scenes in my performance from last weekend was based on a story that I told that had been played back to me. And when it was played back to me, I gained a deeper understanding of the significance of that experience in my life. So playback theater can really serve a lot of purposes. It builds community. It helps people to heal, communities to heal. It can be serving social change, social justice. It can be done in prisons, hospitals, nursing homes, schools. But it's essentially through the shifting of perspectives. Yeah. The first person gets to be the third person and switching of roles in in a sense. Can you say more? What do you mean by... The person telling the story is Mm -hmm. the first person. Mm -hmm. And then they get to sit back and watch other people act it out. Yeah. So they get to be the third person observing their story. Right. So it gives them a completely different perspective. Yes. And most of us are immersed in our first person awareness of our own Mm -hmm. stories and we don't question them and we don't see them. Mm -hmm. It's like being a third person creates an open spaciousness around Mm -hmm. the story, whereas 
generally when we're experiencing our own stories internally, there's no space. We are it. Yeah. And we're lost in it. And we tend to get stuck in it, right? Yeah. And so to yeah. me, it seems like that very powerful healing method. Yeah. The players, the improvisers are really, it's part of their intention to kind of get to the essence of your story and maybe read between the lines just a little bit like not intuiting it yeah intuiting it not taking it too far outside of what you've told like totally respecting and, and honoring the story interesting because sometimes the person telling the story can be very out of touch with their own story right. whereas other people observing it from the outside can really feel mm-hmm. what's at the core what's, what's really going on yeah, yeah. I, and another story I, I've told a couple of stories and another story I told was a story of something pretty sad and awful that happened to me as a as a nine-year-old but I've gotten to a point in my life where I I can laugh at the story and so I was telling the story and people were laughing as I was telling the story and then the improvisers played it back and they chose to emphasize the pain of the Mm nine-year-old which kind of I was like oh oh yeah like that was really (laughs) sometimes we jump the gun on yeah shifting right (laughs) right yeah it's fascinating yeah we have very clever ways of avoiding our pain Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in June, I actually went to an intensive workshop in New York City to really like start learning it more deeply. And I'm hoping to start a series at the Everything Space in Montpelier this fall. But it did work its way kind of indirectly into my work for this semester, just in, in the sense that I've already been talking about that I was in embodying my own stories, I was playing them back for myself so that I could see them from a new perspective by re-embodying them. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Very powerful stuff, <laughs> yeah. It just extends like infinite possibilities of relationship with ourselves and everybody and and how integral we are to each other. Yeah. Yeah, I I saw a really mind-blowing playback performance while I was in New York City. It was the Big Apple Playback Theater, and they're one of the truly, truly like diverse, multiracial, multicultural, multilingual groups that exist in the world, and and they had an incredibly diverse audience as well, and that really really helped me to see the power of what is possible in like bringing together such different stories and in their own diversity they probably together spoke like 10 different languages and used many of those languages in playing back the story which added a whole other element of um of eroticism (laughs) (laughs) it'd be so out of context if somebody is listening to that now and didn't hear that (laughs) earlier (laughs) yes yeah life force different creative energies coming together there was this guy in the audience who had literally just flown in from Sudan the day before and this this was one of the first things that he happened to be somebody brought him to 
in this country. And maybe he didn't understand English. Oh no, he spoke English. Oh, he okay. Yeah, he spoke he spoke some English. And his story of flying from Sudan to Atlanta to New York City the day before became such an integral part of the whole evening. And at the end, they do this sweet ritual where each performer kind of chooses one moment from some story that they, we've heard over the course of the night. So he was brought back in and so welcomed into the space. And yeah. Wow. What a beautiful way of <laughs> welcome somebody yeah. into this new world. Yeah. Into this space it with, prob- you know, with everyone else. Probably. It's like an act yeah. of love. Yeah. The whole thing is an act of, of love, of building this really, really special container in the middle of New York City with all of these people who have never really come together in any other circumstance. But, but yeah, intimacy, like that being uncomfortable in our bodies makes it so much harder to have intimacy with other people, you know, even the person at the store or whatever. We're just so, so afraid of... Whatever we're afraid of. Yeah, whatever it is. And if we're afraid of something, it's usually in the dark somewhere, lurking Mm -hmm. in the shadow Mm -hmm. of our unconscious somewhere. Yeah. That we haven't come to understand yet, come to see a lot of it is so connected to those stories of like what will people think it's the middle schooler in in all of us and also will people feel if i look at this person will they feel am i violating them or something can i be who i am in this situation <laughs> yeah and is it okay yeah yeah i've been practicing out on the sidewalks <laughs> I've been practicing or playing with, first of all, just noticing the other bodies around as I'm walking down the street, kind of tapping in a little bit to the energy of the street or becoming aware like, oh, this parent is having a fight with their child or something, or "This, this is happening, this is happening. And then like practicing just making myself open for some kind of interaction that I would have to be open for in order for it to happen and to just see, like, is anyone else open right now? Like, to just have a moment of meaningful eye contact or... And see if they're available. And see if they're available. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, this is something... I was When I was in New York City for the Playback Theater Workshop, I mean, it's a whole different dynamic. There's so many people... And so everyone copes with that in a different way. And my friend who's visiting from New York City right now was talking about how people are always coming into your space, like trying to give you a flyer or ask you for money or, you know. It's pretty some, intense. Do something, yeah. yeah. And so the the, <laughs> the response is just to kind of. Right. It's hard not to do that. Because, yeah, like just you need boundaries so that all your energy doesn't drain out just while you're walking down the street. Right. You could, <laughs> not only could, could you take on yeah. all the suffering and causes of the world, right. but you could also give away all your money and, <laughs> yeah, you and, could. and every, all your clothes to everybody who needs it. Right. So it's a different experience doing that practice <laughs> in Vermont than it is in New York Vermont City. Is so, so I grew up in Manhattan. So oh, really? I, Oh, yeah, wow. so I've I've lived this very strange kind of extremely opposite polarized life. Wow. 
Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of where we live, I think, is probably based around just like the pace of life that we are needing and wanting. I imagine that a lot of people living in New York City don't particularly want to be living in a a space that is that fast paced, but are choosing to for their life goals or or because they or because that's where they've been forever. Right. It's the story that they're immersed in. Right. And they may not have been exposed to the realm of other possibility. Right. Being able to see (laughs) the world as as otherwise it could be. In some other way it could be. New York can feel like everything. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like, Especially what could possibly be out there? Right. Everything's here. <laughs> well, there's that famous map of the world with New York City and then vast, like, wasteland. That's funny. All around. Yeah. Oh. So, hmm. what do you see yourself doing next? I mean, you have worked with so many different things mm-hmm. and your orientation towards life and learning mm-hmm. is passionate curiosity. I can mm-hmm. feel that. Mm-hmm. When I see that in you, I'm like, yes. Another fully alive human being. Yay. (laughs) Working on it. Working on it every day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I just want to disappear inside a movie. Of course. We ebb and flow. We we move in cycles. Energy flows in Mm -hmm. cycles. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we need to curl up and hide away from the world so that we can just get back to feeling who we are in our core. Yeah for however long that takes. Yeah. And that's part of listening, right? Mm-hmm. We have to be honest. It's like, no, there's no prescribed way of being or responding to anything right. ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like I've just made this amazing discovery about myself, which is that I like to perform and I, and I really liked to make that performance piece and be in a creative art process and that I could even potentially think of myself as an artist. <laughs> Getting over your imposter syndrome. Yeah. Well, when I was young, my, my mom asked what I wanted to be when I grew up and I said, I want to be an artist and a puzzle doer. I think I was doing a puzzle at the time. Putting um, together puzzles? Like a jigsaw puzzle. But, Isn't you know, that's, that's also a, that's a, a wonderful nice, metaphor that's a nice for metaphor. life. Yeah, yes. I love that. Yeah. I want to be an artist who does puzzles. And so I would love to connect the work that I've been doing, which a lot has been working with teenage girls. I've spent a lot of time working with teenage girls, and I really connect with that population and also queer population. Could you quickly define that term? Because Queer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful, beautiful term mm-hmm. that stretches far and wide as wide as you want to stretch it and like if you need a blanket to climb under like that can be your blanket it's a really inclusive term that you know like used to have a derogatory meaning in relation to gay people Mm -hmm. and now it, it can refer to both gender and sexuality and i would say like orientation to the world and like queer theory is like queer has been starting to get used as like queering queering sex education, queering the world. It's a it's it's a movement of breaking down binaries and borders and allowing human expression to just be however it wants to be. I love that. 
that was my sort of vague sense of it. That, <laughs> but I always hear it in different contexts, and I just, yeah, I was just wondering what you thought. Yeah, <laughs> I identify as queer, mm-hmm. and yeah, I feel a pull towards that term as well. Yeah, I have a hard time with terms. I don't like being pegged. Yeah, I mean, hopefully. <laughs> Eventually, everyone will realize that, like, everyone's queer. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully everyone will become queer. Yeah. <laughs> into their, their queerness, yeah. Um, yeah, um, I just referenced um, queering such edu- sex education, and um, uh, one of the pioneers of queer sex education has just... <laughs> I just entered the room. It's too bad we're at the end of we're the show. We're at the end of the show, yeah. Um, oh, can I draw a goddess yes, card we on have, the radio? We've got, we do have okay. that. Okay. I'm just going to... Okay. Okay, we'll do a rapid fire goddess card. Okay. I'm looking for a goddess to join me on the next leg of this crazy queer journey. journey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this very queer journey. I got Ixchel, medicine woman. You are a channel for divine healing power. Whoa. Whoa. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. You demonstrated that well. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Carla, for the goddess guidance cards. Yeah. Yeah. Are we? Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Tony. It's been wonderful. It's been so fun. This has been great. I, just, I love it. I love this. <laughs> so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. This podcast was brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio in Plainfield, Vermont. Thank you for listening. More information about supporting this and other community programs can be found at wgdr.org.